Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And when we started planning this week's show a few weeks back, we thought we'd bring you a rather lighthearted hour of radio. We were going to put together one of our theme-free wildcards shows that we do several times a year. But uh, by 9 a.m. Monday, that plan went out the window. Still a very active search for that shooter. As we reported just a few minutes ago, we heard on a police transmission channel that they had confronted a man with a double-barrel shotgun dressed in black. That- then um, one of the managers came out and said, everyone leave the building. Leave the building because they're shooting. Happening. Doug Hughes heard the shots. Some pop-pop-pops. Then found an office where he hid under a desk and tried not to think about what might happen to him. The police boats came up from the water, jumped out, SWAT style with machine guns and everything, and just told us to run with them. And since those first frenzied moments Monday morning, the Navy Yard story has evolved. From the chaos and confusion of the initial search for the shooter, to the tributes to the 12 people who died, and now to the political back and forth among members of Congress and the White House. Part of that back and forth has to do with the government's process for granting security clearances and how it can be improved. Some people are also making impassioned pleas for improvements to the nation's mental health system. And in other quarters, there are fresh calls for a national discussion about gun control, a discussion that was revived after the Newtown shootings last December, in which 20 children and six adults were killed. But in the spring, that discussion was tabled. To shed some more light on this issue, we sat down with Robert Cottrell. I'm the Harold Paul Green Research Professor of Law at George Washington University and also Professor of History and Sociology in in the College of Arts and Sciences. Cottrell has long been interested in gun control issues. I've been following this for some 40 years now. And he says the continuing debate is, of course, a thorny one. If we look at the aspects of the shooting in, in the Navy Yard, None of the standard gun control arguments seem to fit. Uh, This was done with a pump-action shotgun, not a semi-automatic rifle. The individual, in fact, had background checks, not only uh, sufficient past background checks to to buy the shotgun. He bought the shotgun at a licensed dealer uh, in Wharton, Virginia. But also he had a uh, secret clearance uh, from the Navy. So this is a person who, you know, would have passed any background checks and... There was nothing particularly unusual about the shotgun. By the way, I think in terms of the gun control issue, focus on this gun or that gun uh, as a particularly bad kind of gun is misdirected. What we really need to do is focus on who should be eligible to buy firearms and who should not be and how do you integrate mental health uh, information into that uh, equation. Speaking of of mental health, I mean, there are signs that the shooter, Aaron Alexis, Mm -hmm. was mentally ill. Um, His father said he suffered from PTSD after participating in rescue efforts on September 11th, 2001. And other people who knew him said he showed signs of of anger management issues. And yet he bought this gun in Virginia over the weekend without any problems. Do you expect we might see more of a national focus on, on mental health and the restrictions that should be placed on people with mental health issues having access to guns? The mental health issue, I think, is is a more difficult one um, because we want to encourage people to go to psychiatrists and other mental health professionals, and yet we don't want the mere fact that one is, has, has visited such, uh, such a professional to be a reason for, in fact, losing a right to purchase a firearm for, for legitimate purposes. So 
we need to work on how do you fine-tune that so that individuals who are clearly disturbed are prevented from buying firearms, but not everybody who has a psychological issue and visits a psychiatrist or psychologist uh, finds themselves on a banned list. But certainly, looking at the clues uh, in Mr. Alexis's background, uh, the incident in Rhode Island where he uh, had claimed that he was hearing voices, uh, the incidents of discharging a firearm at, at various people or at, at his neighbor's uh, ceiling or whatnot, all of that should have raised red flags, and, and somehow that wasn't integrated into any kind of system. And that's, by the way, been the common thread in all of these mass shootings, people with histories of mental disturbance. Let's turn to the district now. Um, I mean, you're an African-American. You're working in a city that's pushed some of the nation's strictest gun laws for years. What impact do you think that push for strict gun control has had? Well, I don't think it's uh, had any effect on crime in the district. Uh, During the height of uh, the gun ban in the District of Columbia, the District of Columbia had horrendous crime rates. And it wasn't shown to have any effect whatsoever in terms of reducing crime. And I don't even think that even its defenders would argue that it did. Uh, You know, we know that there are black markets in illegal guns, and they certainly got to the district, uh, you know, during before Heller, before the Supreme Court overturned uh, the district's gun ban. All the ban did, quite frankly, was to prevent uh, law-abiding citizens from defending themselves. It didn't. It certainly didn't stop the gangbangers and the and the drug pushers from being armed. So I wonder, if not Sandy Hook, if not the Navy Yard, what do you think it would take for Congress and and the U.S. to have a fresh start uh, as we talk about guns and and their role in our culture? The question I would ask is, what do you want done in a country where I think the estimates are that there are 300 million guns in civilian hands? Are you seeking a ban? If, in fact, you're seeking a ban, how do you intend to enforce it? Uh, go door to door in every home in America searching out guns. If you have any fears of a police state, that will be a police state. Uh, so, I mean, this idea that there's some kind of stalemate and we need to, to reach some solution, uh, I don't think the solution lies in any kind of uh, major gun ban. The solution lies in refining our steps uh, in terms of who's able to purchase guns. What I'd like to see is uh, the mental health community, the gun owners community, uh, law enforcement, all sit down and, and, you know, have a conversation about, okay, what kinds of mental disabilities or mental disturbances should prevent an individual from being able to purchase a firearm? And, you know, let's sort of look at that and let's sort of uh, develop some realistic criteria along those lines. That was law professor Robert Cottrell of George Washington University. On Monday, and all this week, really... Much attention has been focused on the Navy Yard, a D.C. landmark that's been serving the city, the nation, and the world in various important capacities since 1799. At its peak, the yard consisted of 188 buildings on 126 acres of land and employed nearly 25,000 people. 
To learn more about the Navy Yard, I headed to 8th Street and Virginia Avenue Southeast, not too far from the yard itself, with Tim Krepp, a local tour guide, historian, author, and former naval officer. So the Navy Yard itself dates back all the way to what, the very, very, very late 1700s? The Navy Yard and I share a birthday, October 2nd, so uh, I was not born in 1799, but you know it's a date, that's a good, oh, almost decade after the planning of Washington, D.C. This is a bit of an afterthought. So what happened was in the 1790s, we had a series of naval engagements, and we decided to rebuild a navy. We had had one in the revolutionary days. It had trophied away. We had not concerned about overseas engagement. And then with those, those engagements with France and Barbary states and so on, always a lingering danger with England, we decided to build a navy. And if you build a navy, you need places to build the actual ships. And this was one of the largest in the country. So then we fast forward a couple of years. We've got the War of 1812, and I understand the Navy Yard played an important role in that war. A critical role. For the Americans, the War of 1812 started off as largely a naval war. Uh, We had a series of very morale-boosting engagements with the British. Our frigates defeated their frigates. It didn't at all tip the balance of power at all, but the Royal Navy was the preeminent navy of the world, and here we were meeting them on -on one-on-one engagements and coming out on top. Now, the Navy Yards were burned in that war, but not by the British. No, 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 no. The British didn't get a crack at it. The uh, commandant of the Navy Yard, a guy named Thomas Tingey, had responsibility for defending and failing defending to destroy the Navy Yard. There was actual ships in port, uh, a couple schooners, some other ships that were undergoing construction repair, things like that. We did not want them to fall into the hands of the British. So uh, Commodore Tingey had a very, very difficult decision to do, was to burn the Navy Yard shortly before the British marched into town. But some of it was left intact, correct? Some of it was left intact. And as, as we look down 8th Street right here, down towards uh, the corner of 8th and M, you see the Latrobe Gate. Uh, that was one of the original gates built by Benjamin Latrobe, an early architect of the Capitol. Um, Tingey's house, uh, Quarters A, uh, which is also visible just down M Street a little bit, those survived. Those were the northern parts of the yard, of, of the base. Now, after the War of 1812, the Navy Yard didn't quite recover. No, no. We very much rebuilt the, the Navy Yard. But at this point, the need for it had changed and its location. We are up here on the Potomac River. And if you're trying to have an ocean-going Navy, which we are now trying to do, this is not an ideal spot. You have to sail up three, four, five, many days to get up this river just to get to the ocean. So this is not a good spot. This is too far. The river is silting up. Everyone's cutting down trees and plowing, plowing the lawn. It's silting up. It's not, uh, not something that we use as an active port. Uh, So the functions change, and it stops being uh, a a shipyard, if you will, and goes into more of an ordnance facility. Uh, We do a lot of the early development of our our weapons here, uh, a lot of innovative uh, things with cannons, with industrial uh, um, processes. Robert Fulton of Steamboat fame uh, tests out torpedoes down here. We do all kinds of things in this regard. It becomes a uh, really the Silicon Valley of the naval part of our uh, of our development, and that continues up through the Civil War. As we move into the 1900s, what do we see happening to the Navy Yard then? So the industrial side of it continues to grow. Uh, This becomes uh, the preeminent gun foundry in the U.S. Navy. So if anyone's ever seen the old pictures of the great World War II battleships, their weapons, their 16-inch guns, were forged right here at the Navy Yard. The gears to work the locks in the Panama Canal were built at the foundry here. Uh, And this became a a major employer for the District of Columbia. Uh, And that continued well through World War II. uh, in fact, at the end of World War II, it was redesignated from the Navy Yard to the Naval Gun Foundry in 1945 in recognition of what its role was. Also at that time, though, it, it remained the naval component of Washington, D.C. So this was the ceremonial 
port of entry, if you will, for any number of things. When Charles Lindbergh completed his flight across the Atlantic, he was brought back to a hero's welcome through the Naval Yard. Uh, when the uh, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier was brought back after World War I, he was brought back on the USS Olympia, uh, and she moored up right here, and there was a formal procession from here to the Capitol where he laid in state until his former funeral at Arlington National Cemetery. So tell us what happened in 1961. Well, in 61, we weren't building big guns anymore, and we were building them, we weren't building them here. So uh, that moved away. We stopped having a uh, gun foundry, and it became a bit of an administrative center. The chief of naval operations has his home there. He occupies Commodore Tingey's old house, quarters A, on the, on the yard itself. It became kind of Navy comma other for Washington, D.C., whatever you uh, needed stash over there. I first came here in the mid-90s as a young midshipman at the George Washington University Naval RTC Unit. And I came down here as a uniform shop. It was, you know, stuff down here. And I think one of the best things they've done has been building a riverfront walk. It hasn't always been open, and there's been problems with bikes riding along it. And there's been a tug and pull with the neighbors, but it's been a great thing that we can now ride along our river here, which we didn't used to be able to do. And that gets people interested in what's going on there and how we're treating our wetlands and how we're treating our river. Uh, and I think that's uh, something Navy deserves credit for, is building that riverfront. Uh, it would have been easy just to say, no, you can't go there. It's a secure facility. We're not going to let you on it. And that's what I hope doesn't change with this atrocity, that we still have access to the Navy Yard. Uh, it's still a military facility, and that still has to be protected, but I've gone to children's birthday parties at the museum there. The museum itself is an incredible resource, so I hope that that doesn't get walled off with the aftermath of this. That was local tour guide, historian, and author Tim Krepp. You can see historic photos of the Navy Yard and check out Tim's blog, DC Like a Local, by visiting our website, metroconnection.org. for a break, but when we get back, part two of our series on the uncertain future of Smith Island. If by 2100 we have the chance of four feet of sea level rise, uh, there is there are no ways that I know of to create marshes that are going to be effective against something like that. That's coming up on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Before the break, we were talking about this week's incident at D.C.'s Navy Yard, where 34-year-old Aaron Alexis opened fire and killed a dozen people. Alexis was a Navy reservist turned contractor, and as we heard in the first part of the show, those close to him said he'd been experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder as well as anger issues. Alexis was an extreme case, of course, but that process of transitioning from military to civilian life can be a struggle for many veterans. The Institute for Veterans and Military Families at Syracuse University says the unemployment rate for veterans who served in Iraq and Afghanistan is nearly 3% higher than that of the general population. So now, an interactive video company in Potomac, Maryland, is trying to help veterans learn how to sell their military skills to civilian employers. 
Emily Berman has the story. Michael Banks is a returning veteran. He grew up in Oklahoma City and served in the Army for six years. He was deployed in both Iraq and Afghanistan as a truck driver. And the military is, professionally speaking, all he's ever known. So let's just try it from the top. He's also not a real person. He's the main character in the interactive simulation called Reinventing Michael Banks. It's a choose-your-own-adventure journey through the hiring process. Sharon Sloan is the founder of the production company Will Interactive. She says nearly a year of research went into every decision Michael Banks makes. We do interviews with subject matter experts. We do focus groups. We talk with veterans. We talk with employers. We talk with mental health professionals. We really try to do a 360. We take these true stories and we say, okay, what are the key messages here? Will Interactive has made more than 80 interactive simulations like this, many of them for the military. The company ran a contest about a year ago to find a social issue that could benefit from this sort of interactive movie. The winning idea came from The Coming Home Project, a nonprofit based in San Francisco that helps Iraq and Afghanistan veterans reintegrate into society. Dr. Joseph Bob Rao is the founder. Through our programs, which have served uh, about 3,000 returning veterans and their family members over a six-year period, we have learned about the import of, uh, of employment and unemployment on the mental health and the physical health and the family health uh, of our returning veterans. Bob Rowe says having a job can be the most important bridge back into civilian life, but the transition can be bumpy. Rodney Rowland is an actor in the film and also a veteran. He earned two degrees while in the Navy, which he thought would help him find a job afterward. All the skills that I learned in military, they used to tell me, oh, you're overqualified. I'll try to apply for a job. Oh, you're overqualified. and That doesn't make any sense for this position. Or they want someone who has less skill sets because they feel like they have to pay you more based on your qualifications. Roland says it took him a while to learn to use an interview question about his specific degrees to discuss the value of his broader military experience. I feel like a lot of them don't look into the what the military really is about. Because the certain, some of the skills we learn, like the ability to look at the big picture and say, okay, this needs to be here, this needs to go here, or this personality to go here, and then we can have an operating machine. For someone just out of the military, the often informal job hunting process can be overwhelming. Like in this scene from the video, when Michael's friend calls him to tell him about a job opening at his company. Hey man, uh, you still looking for work? Yep. All right, good, because my boss needs somebody here in the warehouse, a shipping manager or something. Uh, the thing is, though, he needs them like yesterday, so is there any shot you can come in today around 1300 Uh, sure. All right, good. You're going to talk to HR first. Michael has uh, barely enough time to get to the interview and no time to research the company. In the video, you see the scene both from Michael's perspective and from his potential boss's point of view. Sharon Sloan says seeing how military culture is perceived from the outside is pivotal in helping vets learn how to best present themselves in the future and avoid the stereotype of a vet with a short fuse. Is every veteran a, a, you know, a ticking bomb? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. 
Are there some veterans that have some emotional issues? Of course. Are there some hiring managers who do? Of course. Dr. Bob Rao of the Coming Home Project says in the past, veterans' issues from homelessness to PTSD and depression have been discussed in isolation. But that's now changing. What needs to happen, and the best and the brightest in this field um, are, are advocating for this, is a much more integrative view of the, these different factors and realizing that they all influence one another. You can't take the suicide epidemic and detach it from um, employment. And what I'm coming to see is that employment is a key, if not the key player, in this very interconnected set of, of influences on the overall life space of a veteran. And by putting this video online for vets and businesses to access for free, Bob Rao is hopeful it will help vets make a smooth career transition. It's still in production and is set to be released this coming Veterans Day. I'm Emily Berman. So if you were listening a few weeks ago, we brought you a story about the Chesapeake Bay's Smith Island, which climate change experts say is in danger of disappearing due to sea level rise and erosion. Today, Jonathan Wilson goes in search of answers to two pressing questions. What's happening to the island and how fast is it taking place? The last time we were on Smith Island, or to be more exact, the waters between the town of Crisfield, Maryland, and the island, we were talking with Captain Otis Tyler, a lifelong Smith Island resident. People saying we're sinking. We're not sinking. The erosion's getting us, but we're not sinking. I mean, if we're sinking, the whole East Coast is sinking. And most people on the island seem to share Tyler's point of view, or at least agree with him, that scientists are exaggerating. 16-year-old Rebecca Kitching says all you have to do is look at what experts were saying half a century ago. When my dad was young, they said in 50 years this place will be gone. My dad's 52. It never happened. I mean, I don't think we'll ever wash away. I think, yes, we are washing away a little bit at a time, and I don't think it's really as bad as they make it seem. I really don't. Like any close-knit community, Smith Island has a pride about it, and this extends to the island's ability to weather a storm. Residents say during Superstorm Sandy, for example, Smith Island actually fared better than the mainland town of Crisfield, in which more than 300 homes and businesses were damaged. Only two homes suffered significant damage on the island, and native Alan Marsh says ocean waters can simply roll over the island and drain away very quickly. We make out better than a lot of places because there's nowhere to hold the surge. The surge just goes on by. It passes us. We make out as good as any community does. But travel west and start talking with climate scientists and state officials about Smith Island, and you'll quickly get the sense that residents on the island are fighting against the current when it comes to the fate of their home. Because while the island may not technically be sinking, there's an almost universal scientific consensus that the ocean's waters are rising. The latest report from the University of Maryland, prepared for Governor O'Malley, calls for policymakers to prepare for a rise of more than two feet by the year 2050 and a rise of nearly four feet by the end of the century. The report notes that some estimates put sea level rise at six feet by that same date. Most of Smith Island is just three feet above sea level. 
And as for the relatively small impact of Superstorm Sandy, University of Maryland professor Ed Link, a world-renowned expert on sea level rise, says Smith Island was simply lucky this time around. I don't see any major long-term advantage to being an island. Uh, So uh, I think they were very fortunate in this event that Sandy didn't take a different path. Many residents on the island have long been clamoring for some sort of seawall or breakwater to protect the island from damaging storm surges. And there are approved plans for the Army Corps of Engineers to build such a wall. But the plan would cost nearly $20 million, and the local and state funding needed to trigger a federal match hasn't materialized. Professor Link acknowledges that in the world of hurricane flood protection, $20 million is not an exorbitant sum. But he says it's likely to only be the start of the spending if the government decides to head down that path. Galveston, Texas, had built a a 17-foot high seawall to deal with hurricanes and came right back a, a decade or so later and had to make it higher and had to make it longer. So I've never seen any of these things built that that didn't have a brother or sister coming down the road. Finding money for such projects is a constant challenge, and it's clear that Smith Islanders would need a coalition of local, state, and federal leaders on their side to get anything done. But creating that coalition has its own challenges, as evidenced by the overwhelmingly hostile reaction from Smith Islanders to the idea of optional buyouts for property owners worried about the safety of their homes. Carol Gilbert with the state's Department of Housing and Community Development says the reaction was natural for a community of just 276 people, a community worried about population decline. But I I do think it was not as well understood that they were very limited and very voluntary and aimed at uh, vulnerable households that may have a need to uh, locate to retirement housing or um, retirement home on the coast. Zoe Johnson is the program manager for climate change policy at the Maryland Department of Natural Resources. She stresses that the state has no plans to move Smith Island residents off their island and says the state wants to help residents live safely on the island for as long as possible. But she also says the state has to learn from the past. Understanding what has happened historically with some of our island communities sort of foreshadows some of the decisions that may be, you know, coming down the road in, in, in you know, the years to come. And it may be 20 years, 50 years. We, we don't know. But, you know, a decision to move a community is something that needs to happen from within that community. Johnson says in the past two centuries or so, the waters in and around the Chesapeake Bay have reclaimed 13 islands, several of which were populated. Professor Link says though it's hard for island communities to accept, their homelands might as well be temporary structures when it comes to Mother Nature's timeline. In Mother Nature's eyes, they are expendable, dynamic, natural resources, and they commonly come and go. There's nothing common about the history and culture that would be lost if Smith Island goes. But if even the most conservative estimates about sea level rise come to pass, it may be too late to change where things are headed. I'm Jonathan Wilson. If you missed Jonathan's first story on Smith Island's battle with sea level rise, you can find it on our website, metroconnection.org.
We'll swing back to the district now for a story about an age-old problem, bullying. Last year, Mayor Vincent Gray signed a law creating a new anti-bullying task force for D.C. The aim was to create a new citywide policy to prevent harassment and bullying. And this school year is the first in which that policy takes effect in both traditional and public charter schools. Stephen Yenzer visited Two Rivers Public Charter School in D.C.'s Noma neighborhood to talk with one of the people responsible for addressing the problem. Here at Two Rivers, the kids are on their best behavior when a visitor comes by. I'm Suzanne Greenfield, and I'm the director of the Citywide Bullying Prevention Program. Greenfield has been working on this issue for a while. She was a member of the task force created by Mayor Gray, and she says one of the first goals was just to define what bullying is. It's much more of an abusive situation than it is that very long continuum that we all have to deal with of negative behaviors, which start with teasing and can escalate. It's hard sometimes to define if something actually is bullying. But we do want to say, no, this is something very, very specific. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the plan. One of the things that you see a lot is this idea of evidence-based strategies. What does that mean exactly, to be evidence-based? A lot of research has actually been done on bullying, and they have really learned a lot of things about what works and what doesn't work. For example, um, we really found out that zero-tolerance policies don't work. Oftentimes, they really don't address the social-emotional needs of either the student that's been bullied or the student that participates in the bullying. So it seems like a big part of this, in addition to addressing bullying is also addressing how victims of bullying deal with it. So how has that attitude change and strategy for dealing with that? Um, I think of it, some of it is really building resilience. The fact of the matter is we do, again, have a lot of information about what kids tend to get bullied, what kids report the most amount of bullying. Um, and so we can sort of say that there are certain kids that might be more likely to be bullied. And for example, that would be kids with disabilities, kids who are or are perceived to be gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. So we can step back and say, okay, how are we going to frame our community so those kids feel safe and respected? And how do you send that message? Because I imagine you don't want to grab you know, all those kids that you think might be bullied and say, listen, you guys might be a target. I want you to know. So how do you do that? No, we do not want to put kids that we think are at risk under the microscope and tell them to defend themselves. Um, on the contrary, but I think in building that sense that everybody's included in this community. We're all part of this. Again, I keep going back to the research because it's my job, but the fact of the matter is that that they found that teachers who said don't do that I don't like it when you speak to so-and-so that way, actually had a much more enormous effect than don't do that, don't you think he hurt, you hurt that kid's feelings. Because when teachers take ownership and they are saying to kids, no, this is my space and this is my community, and I don't like it because that hurts me, it actually has an effect. So another issue that's receiving a lot of attention is bullying related to sexual orientation and gender expression. Do you think we need to pay particular attention to that kind of harassment or bullying? The policy is underwritten by the human rights law of the District of Columbia. So it enumerates a number of categories um, of people who potentially would face discrimination, um, and that includes sexual orientation, perceived sexual orientation, gender identity, 
but we don't want to limit it to any particular group because any kid could get bullied for any reason. And I think what we do know, again, from what's happened over the, the last 10 or 15 years when we've looked at the risk factors for our gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender youth in schools, we've learned a lot about how to make school climate safer. So we want to learn from the research of how we've made school safer, but we also want to be careful that it doesn't become about categories of kids and not just kids in general. The truth is that you can be, you know, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgendered, and be a bully or be bullied. Um, and both issues need to be addressed. But I also want to make sure we understand this is about kids and making all kids feel safe. That was Suzanne Greenfield, director of the Citywide Bullying Prevention Program, talking with Metro Connection's Stephen Yenzer. And we're curious, what's your own experience with bullying? How do you think it's best to deal with bullying among kids? You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at wamu-metro. After the break... Hitting the court with a dodgeball champ. Some people do the no-look throw. Oh, right. Which is like... So that, I'm not catching that. That was not hard. No, but I'm not catching it. I might break a nail. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're taking a break from our usual thematic approach to the show, and instead we're bringing you a hodgepodge of stories about this, that, and everything in between, really, here in the D.C. region. In just a bit, we'll meet a woman who credits her Persian roots for making her a champion of a highly competitive sport you may remember from middle school, and we'll go head-to-head with her on the court. But first... To get ourselves ready for that challenge, we probably should fuel up, right? Which brings us to a new restaurant in D.C.'s Penn Quarter neighborhood. Right, here we are at Nupa. Nupa Kitchen and Bar. And helping us to get our carbo load on is Nupa's executive chef, Greg McCarty. How are you? Hi, how are you? I'm well, nice. Nice to see you. Good to see you. And pastry chef, Jamil Gadea. Jamil, this is Rebecca. Rebecca, this is Jamil. Hi, nice to meet you. Nupa opened in May, but just started serving brunch this week. And the menu features a type of treat you don't see much of in the district, the crispy, crusty, chewy, doughy roll known as a bialy. For people who don't know what a bialy is, can you describe it? It's from Poland, bialy stock, and it's very similar to a bagel, I find. Um, It doesn't have the traditional hole that goes all the way through. In the center, it's got, uh, you know, the onions and the poppy seed in the center. Sometimes it comes with toasted garlic as well, which we played around with, but the onions with the uh, fresh thyme and and poppy seeds just won over. Now, Chef Greg McCarty is fairly new in town. Just moved from New York to open Nopa Kitchen and Bar. And back in Manhattan, he was pretty much a Bialy fiend. A Bialy was my pick. If I couldn't get down to Coasters on the Lower East Side, I went to Tall Bagels on the Upper East Side where my apartment was and, uh, and got them there. But once he moved to Washington, he wanted Bialis here. And ever the culinary adventurer, he wanted to make them himself. And that's where pastry chef Jamil Gadea comes in. Did you know much about Bialis before baking them here? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> I've never actually even been to New York and eaten the, the proper, like, 
you know, talking to chef about making bialis and oh my god, that's such a New York thing. Everybody in the restaurant was excited about it. And I was like, oh my God, now I gotta really get the pressures on. I gotta nail this. First step, says Greg McCarty, was to give his pastry chef a first hand taste of those New York Bialis. I FedExed a bunch from uh, Kosars in New York on the Lower East Side um, so we could try to mimic them as best as we could. The key was to capture that same crusty on the outside, chewy on the inside, je ne sais quoi, that makes a Bialy, well, a Bialy. Because, let's be honest, Ibiali is about history, so we wanted to pay respect. But at the same time, McCarty says, they were also trying to make their Bialis very much their own. You know, we played around with leeks, I said we played around with garlic, we played around with a lot of different flavorings. We also wanted some of that onion and uh, herb flavor to go throughout the Bialy, whereas sometimes a lot of Bialis that you get, it's just in the center you get the onion filling. I thought it would be great if we could have a little bit of the onion filling dispersed throughout the Bialy itself. So Jamil Gadea would tinker together one recipe. Every day, just constantly, chef, what do you think? Okay, chef, what do you think? Chef, what do you think? And then another. It's not right, it's not right, it's not right, it's not right. Until finally, says Chef Greg McCarty. We're probably 99% of the way there. You're never going to reach perfection, but it's, it's pretty close. The recipe Jamil Gadea eventually lit upon is actually pretty simple. Though, like a Bialy with its onions and poppy seeds, it's also filled with nuance. So we start out with our pre-ferment, which we use a natural starter, and uh, just build that up to a poolish. Uh, poolish refers to the typical type of starter from Poland. So it's, it's equal parts water, flour, and starter. You mix those three together. Leave it to ferment for four hours. And once the mixture's developed a nice volume and lightness, you add in... The rest of the flour. A little bit of salt. And a little bit of poppy seeds, a little bit of sweated onions and chives. Then you mix all that together. After a few minutes, you remove the dough from the mixer, portion out however many bialis you want to make. And um, start the shaping process, which it is a process. It's just kind of like stretching pizza dough. You still have to do it all in one shot. You're going to do it a little bit and then let it rest for 5-10 minutes, stretch it a little bit more. Otherwise, what happens when you put them in the oven, all that beautiful onion and poppy seed filling just gets swallowed up. The center has just disappeared. After the stretching, you dab on that filling, and then you bake the bialis in the oven. Though traditionally, says Greg McCarty, you'd use an actual bialy oven, which NOPA doesn't have. We don't have, you know, 100% of the tools that you need, but with our cast iron pans and the ovens we do have, we come pretty close. And again, it's all part of the NOPA crew putting their own spin on things while paying respect to the past. And as a D.C. newcomer, McCarty says it's been a delicious nod to his own past back in New York. You know, because everybody wants a little piece of home, uh, no matter where you are. To see photos of Nopa's Bialy and to get your hands on a recipe for the doughy treat, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Alright, so now that we are all fueled up on Bialis, let's burn some of that energy with a little dodgeball. Surely you remember the sport from when you were a kid, right? You run around hurling a big rubber ball at other players, all the while trying to avoid getting hit yourself. Many of us would probably prefer to leave our dodgeball days firmly in the past, but not Paniz Asgari. Not only does the Washingtonian moonlight as somewhat of a dodgeball professional, she's become one of the best dodgeball players in the country. 
She recently showed reporter Lauren Ober a few of her signature moves. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that when you hear the word dodgeball, you think about the time you got drilled in the face of the red rubber ball in the playground. Or maybe you think of the classic Vince Vaughn Ben Stiller movie, Dodgeball, a true underdog story. Dodgeball is a sport of violence, exclusion, and degradation. Make sure you pick the bigger, stronger kids for your team. That way, you can all gang up on the weaker ones. But that's not what comes to mind for Paniz Ascari. When she thinks about dodgeball, she thinks strategy and training and world championships. For me, it's a super fun sport that I happen to excel at. The 29-year-old D.C. resident was recently selected to the 2013 U.S. Women's National Dodgeball Team. And at the end of September, Ascari and her teammates head to New Zealand for the world championships. Yup, Ascari is flying halfway around the world to play dodgeball for her country. I mean, can we all acknowledge that there's like an inherent ridiculousness a little bit, like a silliness to it, right? Because it's a playground sport, which is not to take away, you know, any sort of skill involved. But like when you tell people, hey, I'm going to go to New Zealand and play dodgeball, people are like, what? Right? Like they raise an eyebrow. Or, or no, am I like totally offending you by saying that? I'm not offended that you think some people might think dodgeball is silly. It can be silly, but get on the court, come play with me, and we'll see if you end up thinking it's still silly. So I take her up on that. We head to the racquetball courts at the Georgetown Law Center gym where she runs a co-ed dodgeball league. She's going to demonstrate a few moves that landed her on the national team. But before we start playing, I try to assess her skills. How fast can you throw it? 100 miles an hour? As fast as I can get people out. Yikes. First, we begin with throwing. Ascari demonstrates a couple of techniques. So what I use is the sidearm technique. It's perplexing to the person that's being thrown at because they don't know what direction you're going in. Now, if you watch. (laughs) That was so loud. And listen, you have so much more to work with it, just the force that you can throw it with, because it's your whole body motion as opposed to just your arm. Then she lets me have a go. Now you're, you're going overhand. Oh. Try to go from the side. Okay, go from the side. All right. But not low up. It's got to be from high to low. It has to be from high to You're signing up for next season. You're going to be great. <laughs> we go through some of Ascari's flashier moves, including some sneaky behind-the-back action. Then she does the no-look. Some people do the no-look throw. Oh, right. Which is like... I'm not touching that. That was not hard. What? That wasn't hard. After a few more basics, we play for real. I'm taking it easy. I don't want to go all out. Go on. Lauren, are you ready? I'm ready. Ooh! That got me. Ascari proves she is definitely no slouch on the dodgeball court. In her regular league play, she generally is the last person standing on her team. But she's sort of predestined to be good. Dodgeball is in her blood. Ascari is Persian. She was born in Tehran and immigrated to the U.S. with her family when she was two and a half. And apparently, Persians love dodgeball. Their version of the game is called Vasati. 
The Persian version of dodgeball is where you have one team that's in the middle, almost like monkey in the middle. But instead of throwing the ball over every time so that you can't get it, they try and hit you. And so that second team is split on either side of you, and they'll throw the ball back and forth. Sometimes they'll throw it over. And you just keep playing until they get everybody out. I've been groomed for this sport. I have. <laughs> Vasati is still really popular in the Persian expat community. Ascari remembers playing all the time when she was growing up in Northern Virginia. Picnics, barbecues. Every chance I ever got, I played dodgeball with friends, family. And I said, hey, I know what I'm doing. I'm coming into this with an unfair advantage. Ascari's parents fled Iran during the height of the Iran-Iraq War. In Iran, her father was an architect. Her mother was a nurse. When they left their lives in Tehran and landed in the U.S., they had to start over. Ascari's mother got a job handing out yellow pages for five cents a book. Her father found work driving a taxi. My parents were upper middle class, educated Iranians, and they left everything. They left it all and came to the U.S. I am forever grateful for their sacrifice, for, for them to give up everything that they ever knew to make my life absolutely amazing. And a big part of that amazing life is dodgeball. Ascari takes the sport seriously and leaves it all on the court. Her immigrant parents taught her that. My takeaway has been to never be lazy, to never take anything for granted. And so there is no option to quit. So watch out, New Zealand. Ascari's coming to drop bombs. Dodge bombs. I'm Lauren Ober. Denise Asgari competes in the World Dodgeball Federation Invitational on September 27th. You can see photos of her playing dodgeball and learn more about the tournament on our website, metroconnection.org. our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit D.C.'s Trinidad neighborhood and the Brookdale section of Bethesda, Maryland. My name is Amy Rispin. I live in the Orcherdale section of Brookdale, which is a community celebrating its 75th anniversary since its founding in 1938. And we are in Bethesda near Friendship Heights. Two farms ultimately gave rise to the community of Brookdale. Isaac Shoemaker's farm, and the other was James Henry Loughborough's farm, which was originally a plantation set up by his grandfather, Nathan, uh, who was the first treasurer of the United States federal government. Brookdale North and South have some very characteristic English-style homes, and it's not cookie-cutter. The people who live in some of those homes love the fact that although lots are not very big, they have privacy. No porch faces another porch. Years ago, one of my colleagues, she took public transportation, which took her a great deal of time because it was before the metro. And so I would give her a ride at the end of the day back to this neighborhood, and I observed the community life. I could see people walking their dogs. I could see how pleasant it was, uh, how people seemed to really know each other, and I set my sights on it. My name is Marquis Artavia Lyons, and I live in the Trinidad community. 
Trinidad is located in the northeast quadrant of the city, basically bound by Florida Avenue, West Virginia Avenue, Trinidad, and Mount Olivet Road. The population is changing, and right now I see that we have an influx of more paraprofessionals moving into the area, both African American and Caucasians. One thing that I can say is that the citizens came together to fight the crime that uh, was so publicized in the uh, media. We came together regardless of what sector, if you lived in the northern or the southern area of Trinidad, to combat the fighting and we took back our neighborhood, determined that we were not going to allow the media or anyone to give us an identifying code as a crime-ridden area. But we speak to one another in the morning. When we walk to the bus stop, we greet each other with, hello, how are you? And as a way of checking on each other, if you don't see someone at the bus stop over a period of two or three days, you start to inquire, what is the well-being of that person? And so for that reason alone, I felt safe and I want to be a part of a community that continues to care about its residents. We heard from Amy Rispin in Brookdale and Marquis Octavia Lyons in Trinidad. If you'd like us to knock on your door so you can talk about your neighborhood, send an email to metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at wamumetro. And we have a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far on our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Emily Berman, Jonathan Wilson, and Stephen Yenzer, along with reporter Lauren Ober. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Stephen Yenzer. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Kettle Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can find all the music we use each week on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of the show, you can stream the whole thing on our website, too, by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also subscribe to our podcast there or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll explore the idea of coming of age. We'll learn how one faith community teaches young people about sexuality and why it's planning to create a similar class for adults. We'll meet a young man whose coming of age story involves foster care and the juvenile justice system. And we'll hear how teens in Tacoma Park view the city's decision to lower the voting age to 16. I I, I think I have plenty of friends who are more politically mature than probably the vast majority of Americans. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.